Anyways, uh, we are beginning officially our series, our new series today on the life of David uh, and what we can learn from David through the story uh, of his life. And so uh, this will be about five weeks in length. And, you know, it's going to show us, you know, how we're called to live, but also it's going to point us to Jesus. And we'll point those things out as we go out through the, each series or each uh, sermon. Uh, this Sunday, we're going to look at the passage where David is called by Samuel to be, you know, the new king of Israel. And so this is the passage that we're going to look at today. It's going to be 1 Samuel 16. So you can open up your Bibles there. Before we begin, a little story. Growing up, I wanted to be, to prove that I was extraordinary, that I was somebody special. Uh, you know, we all want to be seen and heard as, known as a somebody, uh, you know, and I've mentioned it before, my desire was to, you know, play basketball and it gets me to college and then, you know, hopefully something of prominence after that. You know, I, I want to maybe be a well-known businessman, living off the shores of Florida, eating shrimp every day, buying caviar because that's what you do when you got lots of money, but never really eating it because it looks and sounds gross. And so, but being someone is what we're drawn to, is why I think, you know, some people or at some point, maybe you've really liked superheroes. I'm not sure if you're at that spot right now. You don't have to say it, but at some point, maybe you have. Uh, and most of us, like I said, have been enamored by superheroes. And maybe, like I said, still love superheroes. Zion and Jude, they're in that superhero stage right now. Uh, they went and they bought Spider-Man costumes. And not like the cheap Halloween-type material ones, but like the full-body Spider-Man outfits. And so... Um, and so they're like legit with the zipper, good material and everything. You know, you can get them on Amazon if you're interested. And so, uh, and then they came back, I came home and they were acting like superheroes. And so Jude is constantly jumping out of the closet, you know, dressed up as Spider-Man trying to scare me. He's literally sliding off couches. I don't know if Spider-Man does that, but uh, Jude does it. And so he's sliding down couches. Uh, then they asked their oldest brother, hey, Malachi, you come be the bad guy. But that was a really bad decision because then they realized quickly that they are not superheroes and that the older, stronger brother, you know, he begins to beat on them and then we have to step in. And uh, there is something in life uh, that I realize more and more as I get older, that I'm a bit ordinary. Uh, so... Uh, not that it's a bad thing. And you know what? Uh, you might hear this and be like, what? Ordinary? And so, but you know what? We're all obviously beautifully and wonderfully created in the image of Christ. But our strength doesn't come from, you know, us. Uh, it comes from somebody who's extraordinary. And you know what? And I want to show you that the ordinary things about us, the ordinary things actually about David, and we talk about David and we're like, oh, he's amazing, he's spectacular, he's this, you know, it's, you know the greatest king of all, and all these wonderful things. But we recognize that David was a bit ordinary for, you know, what the Spirit came upon him and he was extraordinary. And so the story of David is about Israel's search right, for a king. And today we're going to learn some significant things about what God is searching for in a king, how God goes about choosing making a king. But more importantly, we're going uh, to the point that Jesus is our king. And this is what we, you know, this Old Testament story is all about, recognizing that we needed a king. So 1 Samuel 16, here's what's happening up to this point. Samuel the prophet, right, he uh, is in deep distress because of the sin of Saul. He'd picked Saul. Saul turned out to be nothing like what Samuel actually had hoped for. And Samuel, you know, he had this vision of a king, which was given to him by his mother, Hannah, and who would be this 
be faithful to God and would be faithful to the people of Israel. A king who would love and trust God and would teach uh, the people to do the same. And a king who could use the power to bless and serve the people, to promote justice, to lift up the needy. This was what the hope was for Saul. The kind of king that would not you know, have to command the allegiance of people. Uh, he would win it from them. The people would be willing to die for him because they could see he was willing to die for them. And so they did what they normally did in picking a king. Samuel did what you know, everybody in that time normally did when they were picking a king, when they were looking for a king. They looked for the tall, dark, handsome guy who looked like a warrior. And we've got a picture of Saul here, I think. It, is it going to pop up, maybe? We've got a PowerPoint? No? It was a really good picture. Yeah, there it is. That's Saul. Um, it's, it's actually Brad Pitt. And so, anyways, uh, but this is what they were looking for at this time during a king. They always looked for the looks. They looked for that tall, strong, commanding type person. But they never really looked for that person, you know, who was strong, confident, inside. And so 1 Samuel 9, 2, it says this, and he had his son named Saul, choice and handsome, without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the other people. Like, this is like primo good looking. And so like without equal among the Israelites, who says that? And so a head taller than any of the people. And so they were looking for somebody who they thought would look good and be a good king. So Saul turned out to be faithful to nobody but himself. And so Samuel, he's really depressed. He's really bogged down. Depressed like, you know, if you go to McDonald's, you order a Big Mac, you go through the drive-thru, you get home, uh, you have a McDonald's bag in hand, and you sit down at your kitchen table, and you're ready to eat your Big Mac, and you open up the bag, and there is a salad. I didn't order a salad. I don't want to be healthy. I wanted a Big Mac. And so that's the kind of disappointment, maybe a little bit higher. Obviously, you can tell where my disappointment is this past week. Um, so, but... This is the primo disappointment that set in. They looking for a king. This king was not the person they thought he was going to be. So, what was going to happen is that there was going to be a new king appointed. And this new king is now described in 1 Samuel 13, 14. It says this, But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. So, what is this man after God's own heart? What is he like? What, what's he supposed to be? And this is where we're going to dive into 1 Samuel 16. All right, so if you have your Bibles, you can open it. If not, it's going to pop up here on the screen. I'm going to read the first four verses of Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 16. It says this, The Lord asked Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul, now that I have rejected him as king of Israel? Fill a flask, with olive oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse in Bethlehem because I selected one of his sons to be king. How can I go, Samuel asked. When Saul hears about it, he's going to kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I will reveal to you what you should do and you will anoint for me the one I point out to you. Samuel did what the Lord told him. When he came to Bethlehem, the leaders of the city trembling with fear, greeted him and said, may peace be with you. So we can certainly understand Samuel's fear. There isn't any doubt, you know, what Saul would consider this treason, what he's about to do, what Samuel is about to go do. And at the same time, it shows this note of fear in Samuel 
uh, that we're actually almost surprised to see. You know, perhaps Samuel's excessive mourning over Saul has introduced an element of fear and unbelief in his heart now. Something has so drastically changed in Saul that the man he appointed to be king, that he is now actually afraid. God, you know what he does? What God does, he alleviates Samuel's concerns. He's telling the prophet that rather than express his full intentions, he is to simply state that he has some, some he has come to sacrifice and to invite Jesse's family. Now, when a prophet visits a town. There are three things that usually happen. So when a prophet comes into town, there's three things. One thing that they might do is they might warn them of sin. The second thing that they would do, maybe, is come and actually in judgment. And the third thing that they might do is offer a sacrifice. And so you might find it interesting when it says, when he came to Bethlehem, the leaders of the city, trembling with fear, greeted him and say, may peace be with you. And Samuel, he arrives at Bethlehem, and they're a bit nervous, right? Because the last thing that Samuel did before this, or leading up to this, was slaughter the Amalekite king into pieces. So the prophet was no doubt an intimidating presence when he was coming into Bethlehem. They're like, so what's your business here today? Samuel reassures them that he comes in peace and expresses his intentions to sacrifice and invites Jesse's and his sons to the meal. All right, let's continue on. Next four verses. Greetings, he replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Perform the ceremonies to make yourselves holy and come with me to the sacrifice. He performed the ceremonies for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he saw Eliab and thought, certainly here in the Lord's presence is his anointed king. But the Lord told Samuel, don't look at his appearance or how tall he is because I've rejected him. God does not see the hu- as human seek. Humans look at outward appearances, but the Lord looks into the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and brought him to Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse had Shema come to Samuel. The Lord has not chosen this one either. Samuel said, so Jesse brought seven more of his sons to Samuel. But Samuel told Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. So, Right from the first, first boy that comes in, right? The oldest comes in, the first boy. Samuel literally almost falls back into the problem that led him to anointing Saul as king. Eliab walks in, and he's like, this is one mighty fine, strong man. Certainly the Lord's presence is all over him. He is shining like a star. This has to be the king. Prince William, literally eat your heart out. This guy has nothing on you. You have nothing on him. But this time, God sets the prophet straight and tells him to focus and remember, listen, I'll point out who to anoint. I'm not looking at the exteriors. I'm looking for the internals. I'm looking on the inside here. And this is the heart of the passage. This is the heart of the story. God doesn't ever look at what we look at. He looks at the heart. God never looks at someone and says, wow, this guy is built, or nice resume, or, you know, great car, or sweet haircut, or, you know, how much did you make last year? None of those things that God is asking. He's simply looking at someone's heart. Which leads to a big question, leads to the big question that we can ask ourselves as we journey throughout this week, as we go throughout our time here on earth. What, how much time do we worry about working on our externals rather than the internal things? I mean, I, it, took, it didn't take me very long to look this good today. Um, like, it, it doesn't take me very long. But do you take the time like, to make sure that your heart is in a good space? Like soul care that we were talking about previously leading up to this in our rhythm series. 
practicing those things that help us center on Christ, that focus our heart upon Him, the things that Christ is really concerned about. I'm sure he wants us you know, to take care of our bodies for sure. But you know what? That's not what it's all about. He's concerned about what's happening on the inside here. And so another way to look at it at that is this. If you spend more time on your exterior, maybe your body, your resume, than you do your heart, maybe you have to ask the question, do I value people's opinions more? Or do I value what God is saying? Samuel almost fell into another Saul problem right off the bat. He almost chose Eliab because he looks kingly. We'll find out in a couple of chapters actually later that Eliab is critical. He's arrogant. He's fearful. And he actually doesn't trust God. But good thing he didn't pick him. Now there is another problem. He sees all the sons and doesn't have a new king to pick out. You imagine him standing there going through the sons, starting with Eliab. And Eliab walks in. He's like, yes. God's like, <clears throat> okay, yeah, no, 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 sorry. Um, and you know, then another one walks in. No. Another one walks in. Then another one knocks in. No. Then another one knocks, well, knocks in. Walks in. No. And he stops and looks at God and he says, there's no more sons. Should we just go with Eliab? <laughs> um, but then he asks what probably might be perceived as a stupid question. And what might rightly feel like a stupid question as we read this. And it continues in verse 11. Are these all the sons that you have? I mean, you've got a lot. They're still the youngest one, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send someone to get him. We won't continue until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had a healthy complexion, attractive eyes, and a handsome appearance. The Lord said, go ahead, anoint him. He is the one. Samuel took the flask of olive oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. The Lord's spirit came over David and stayed with him from that day on. Then Samuel left for Ramah. Now, let's look at this in a different way. Isn't this a bit heartbreaking? Jesse doesn't even think to bring David. It can't be him. Even before, you know, it's, they're choosing all the sons. It's like, it, it can't be David. It can't be him. Right? Traditionally, a shepherd was the lowest of lows, the youngest child being the least valuable. Sorry, Evie, you're very valuable wherever you are. I love you. This is, Dad, you are, let's not listen to this story. Uh, David, probably, he was 11 or 12 years old. So imagine the moment when the messenger breathlessly approaches David. He had to go out and get David. David is curious, like, what's wrong? What's wrong? The messenger relays the events. He says, I'm looking for a new king to anoint. And I asked for all the sons and went through your brothers, and it wasn't them. So I asked your dad if he had any more sons, and he said, yes, you. Just imagine that, what that might feel like for David. Like a blow to the heart. David reminded of his place and his worth. My dad forgot me. Or worse, he remembered me, and he disregarded me. Or, you know, he left me behind once more. Like David wasn't even invited to the sacrificial meal. While everyone is eating, while everyone is together, while everyone is fellowshipping, while there's anticipation of a new king that might be anointed, David isn't even in the running. He is out attending to the sheep. He's not even invited to the meal. We have felt like this sometimes. It is painful because maybe it's been the experience for some of us. But the beauty is this. God sees you when you're overlooked. 
And on top of that, he calls you to something that he has in store for you. Humanly speaking, love is contingent on something, looks, chemistry, personality, their character, their traits. God's love isn't like that. There is this age-old question that's constantly asked, why does God love? Why does God love? And the Puritans, they would say this, he loves us because he loves us because he loves us. He just loves us. He loves us because he loves us. God's love simply is founded in himself. Ephesians 1, 4-6 says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. There is nothing in us that chooses God. Our hearts naturally, you know, they actually tend against him. But David never had to prove his worth, but simply received his worth from the one who is worthy. When had God chosen David? When he had done nothing, when he was nothing. God chose him. He had chosen him. Now, what is shocking is that David's appearance is actually mentioned when he is chosen and anointed. And it says this, attractive eyes and a handsome appearance. And you might be like, well, didn't he just end up picking the one that looked good anyways? Like, did he, does Samuel fall back into that thing? You know, that got him in trouble with Saul? In Hebrew, it is translated beautiful eyes, where it says attractive eyes. The word for outward appearance in the Hebrew is actually beautiful eyes. So when you hear beautiful eyes, it's actually about outward appearance. It's how it's translated. So did God just choose someone based on appearance? David's appearance, however, was not what humans thought about a king should look like. We'll see, you know, next week as we end of 1 Samuel 17, you know, when, Dan, when, when Goliath lays his eyes on David, he actually despises him for his looks because he didn't look like a warrior. He didn't look like a warrior. He actually thought this kid, like, like what are you sending me? The point is, he doesn't look like a king. David doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look like a man of war. He looks like a, like a runt kid with a little boy face. Think of kid Justin Bieber. I think I have a picture. That's what David looked like. Um, and so this is what he just looked, he's just cute. It's not like, you know, someone's cheeks you wanted to pinch. And so um, it's what David looked like. So what can we take from this story? What can we glean from this? David was ordinarily humble. This is what the point is. You say, but wait, David... But didn't David's life turn out to be extraordinary? Didn't it turn out to be the whole David and the Goliath thing? What an amazing story. And, you know, writing all the Psalms, that's no small feat. Like, and didn't it become the greatest king ever as it was described? Yeah, but those were all the result of the Spirit of God being on David. The Spirit resting on David. Like when he killed Goliath, he wasn't this mighty person. He just, he was coming actually to bring sandwiches right to his brother's. When he wrote the Psalms, he was hanging out in the pastures, or actually he was hiding in caves during that time. David became extraordinary, not because there was anything extraordinary about him, but because God's Spirit was mightily upon him, and he simply wanted to be a humbly servant of Christ, of the Lord. He just wanted to serve him. And the reason David has access to this extraordinary God was because he didn't think he was extraordinary in himself like Saul did. Saul thought he was the greatest. He thought he was the cat's meow. 
See, God made David this. God made David extraordinary in the past year. So right after verse 13, the white space is what happens. The Spirit of God rushes on David, right? He's anointed, and they pour that flask upon him. And we think, this is it. He's taken the throne. David, in that white space, he goes back to the pasture. Imagine how momentous this was for David. Samuel, the most, the most important prophet in Israel, he actually seeks you out. He says, God has chosen you. He pours oil on your head. You feel it run down your hair and your neck. And then, where does David go? Immediately into this like king training program? Or does he start getting an interview, you know, by the most popular magazine in Israel? Does he go down to the department store to try on crowns and robes? You know what? You might as well get fitted now. Nope. He goes back to the pasture. Verse 19, when they look for David a few years later, they have to get David back out of the pasture. See, God uses the pasture to prepare us. In the pasture, God builds you, your skill. He builds your character. He works on you. And the world and God, they have two different things that they look at for their leaders. And they use two different methods. And there's four like, words that characterize David's time in the pasture. One word is obscurity. For those years, no one paid any attention to him. David just went back to work. The second thing that can characterize David's time in the pasture is monotony. David, what did you do today? Well, you know, I watched the sheep. They walked from here to there. What else? Well, I worked a little with the slingshot that I got. You know, I, you wouldn't believe this, but I can actually knock that apple off the tree from 100 yards. You know, do you want to see it? Uh, I don't really care, David. Anything else? Well, you know, I got so bored that I decided to learn how to play the harp. Um, wrote a couple songs. Do you want to hear them? No, I don't. A few months ago, a lion and a bear, you know, they attacked the sheep and I killed one of them with my bare hands. David, like, can you verify that? Like, where's that lion? Where, like, there's this monotony that happened in the pasture. And sometimes, for some of us, we might feel we're still waiting on things, waiting on the Lord. There's some words in your life that you're like, Lord, I know you've said this about me. I know that you have this for me, but I'm waiting. But you know what? You're still in the pasture. And it's okay to be in the pasture. Because he's creating you, he's molding you, he's working on you. Another word that can characterize David's time in the pasture is suffering. You know, David, he's driven then out of his home. Then he's driven out of his country. He's pursued like a dog, and he didn't, actually did nothing wrong. Now, another word, the last one that can characterize David's time in the pasture is just a reality. In the pasture, God developed David's skills. With the slingshot, which, like I said, will come in handy later. With the harp, David will become the world's most famous songwriter ever. He developed David's courage. When he looks at Goliath, he would say, if God give me the ability to kill a lion and a bear, I could probably also handle you, Goliath. I mean, putting a rock into someone's head is the same whether it's a bear or a giant. I'm sure he learned humility. He probably was reminded where he came from and when God chose him. And he learned patience. God taught him to wait. God taught him to trust. 
And are you frustrated in your way? Have you been there in the waiting? And have you been frustrated in the waiting? Lord, when is this coming? Lord, what are you doing? Lord, where are you? I cannot see you. I cannot feel you. Lord, you might be in that pasture, and that pasture looks vast, and you might feel extremely lonely in that pasture. But the beauty is the Lord has anointed you. His presence is upon you. The Spirit is living inside of you, and He keeps His promises, and He's working on you. Trust in Him. There will be moments in your life when God does or says something that resonates deeply with you, and you just know that something big is going to happen right? Then years go by. Then that thing doesn't happen. But those lost years, what we might feel like are lost years, it doesn't erase God's mark on us. The announcement was still made. The time has simply just not yet come. So be calm, be gentle with yourself, trust in the Lord, draw close to Him. Because the danger on the other side is that we then begin to think, like, I just push some doors open myself. Have we been there door pushing? Lord, you're not doing it. Here we go. And we just kick that door in. Acts 17.26 says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of us. We can resonate that he has determined allotted periods in our life and boundaries of our dwelling pace, how long we're meant to be there, how long... We're so, he's calling us to that space and we trust when he's moving us. You are where you are right now because where you are is where God wants you to be. Maybe you've been told you're going to be the next king. I mean, if you are, please let me know. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, are you king now? David wasn't. David did his job there, right where he was. He was a shepherd and he looked after the sheep well. He was gifted in music, so he he played well. He was given the opportunity to wait, and he waited well. He was given the opportunity to hunt, and he hunted well. He was given the opportunity to obey, and he obeyed well. Even after his anointing, when he was given an opportunity to sing and play for all the people, and now the demon-possessed king, he did it well. He did it well. And that is all that God wanted from him at that time. Now, I'm going to close, and we're going to have communion here. One of the last things we see is that Jesus, how does this, what does this show us about Jesus? What does this show us about Christ? It shows us that Jesus would be the true, truly ordinary, extraordinary. All this stuff is pointing us to a much greater story than our own. David looks ordinary, right? He's anointed, and the Spirit of the Lord rushes on him. But then he goes back into the pasture and will spend the next 10 years of his life in obscurity. Jesus was a carpenter. He had a regular blue-collar job. He wasn't a rising ruler. He wasn't even a rabbi. He would not even be in the who's who or any on the who the watch next list. He wasn't like Times Top 100 or anything like that. Then Jesus and, and David, well, then he was anointed king. In fact, the word anointed used in 1 Samuel in the Hebrew is pronounced this way, Mesha. And out of that word comes Mesha or Messiah, which means anointed one. So in the Greek, that is translated Christ. Jesus, the Christ, is going to be the ultimate anointed one. So this is showing us of one who's going to be ultimately anointed. 
Like David, when Jesus was anointed, the Holy Spirit, right, rushed upon him like a dove. Then he was taken by the Spirit. Where was Jesus taken? Into the wilderness, where he was tested for 40 days. David went right back into the pasture where he learned and honed his skills. Jesus went into the wilderness. In fact, it was Satan who came to him during that time and offered Jesus the throne in a way that would shortcut the pasture that Jesus was going to go through. So the main point of all this is not that if you hang on, God will put you on the throne of Israel. That seed is already taken. Sorry. The point is that Jesus is on the throne, that those of us who live to extend his kingdom will do so in the same way David and Jesus did. Anointed, filled with the Spirit, going into the pasture. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says that you are anointed. God put his spirit in you, which is like an anointing that guarantees our choosing to God. Maybe you're in the pasture. Curtis and Timo, you come up. I want to play as we are going to partake together. Why don't you stand with me and grab your elements. Maybe you're in the pasture or you're being pursued unjustly by maybe some Saul in your life. What I can promise you is this. God is bringing his greatest works out of your faithfulness. I'm not sure where you're at right now. I'm not sure what you're going through. I'm not sure if you feel like you're in that pasture. But I know this. God is working on you. He's going to do a great work in you. And he says this. Obey in the small, and God will give you power in the great. Before you can be a leader in the great things, you have to be faithful, right, in those small things, just like David. We're all chosen. We're all anointed. His spirit is upon us. He's called us to something. I'm not sure if you're going through that pasture right now. But the story can show us that he's working on us. And that as we go through the pasture, let him work on us.